Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Worried, James. I am very worried. No. I'm worried about you. Me? Yes. You have recently disclosed to me that you are podcasting on a computer with a bulging battery that was such that the lid can't even close. And that is not wise. It's not smart. Their house is going to blow up and it's going to happen on this podcast. It's going to be very tragic. So I got a 2013 MacBook Pro, which I'm still fond of, but I have this wonderful external display and I don't like cluttering my desk. So I keep the MacBook under the desk and I've had the lid closed on it. And I think it's probably gotten a little warm over time. And I went to look at it the other day and it's like, this is a little weirdly shaped. And I pulled it out and it's literally deformed. It's gradually expanding in space as the battery continues to deform. And I was like, uh, I mean, I looked at new ones and I was like, but for audience, for I just be clear, I have pushed James to go get, get this fixed or out of his house immediately. So you don't need to email us. Yes, he is being reckless, but sheesh. I keep looking at Apple's offerings and nothing grabs me. Like I don't want to touch bar on the top of my MacBook Pro. And plus I have this external monitor and I don't want to stick another one under the desk. The Mac Pros are outrageously expensive and the Mac Minis have no decent GPU. And like by the time I put a terabyte of hard drive, space in it it's two thousand dollars or something it's like well i'll just live with my ever expanding (laughs) i should probably take it in you're right you know this is actually a welcome (laughs) tie-in to uh discussion this week basically apple's monopoly on mac os is going to kill you literally Mm, that is a pretty good segue of like tying it from my (laughs) personal circumstance into the article who am i to do something like that but no it's interesting because this week i wrote about and i actually this is one where i think it's interesting it's useful to put the clarification right up top Mm. i wrote about integration and monopoly which is probably a terrible title choice because the point here was not to say that apple is necessarily doing illegal things Uh, i think some of the issues that i touched on the article particularly on the app store which we've talked about and disagreed about are very problematic. The point rather was to discuss something. We actually did a podcast about this way back when the exponent started. I think it was episode 11. I know because I was searching for it in that podcast. It was about a tweet that I wrote about how Apple has a monopoly on iOS and monopolies are very profitable. And this is sort of what I was retouching on in this case, which is what makes Apple's model so compelling is that they operate not as a monopoly in any sort of legal sense, but they monetize like a monopoly because of the integration of hardware and software, where it means if you want Apple software, you have to buy Apple's hardware. And that hardware is competing against other hardware that runs different software. So it's like they get the best of both worlds. They get to sort of price their hardware at a much higher level compared to other folks and make a huge profit margin because it's differentiated by software. So to use the terms, they have a monopoly on their own software. And so they monetize it by restricting it to their own hardware. And again, this is not a criticism. I think like I should have learned this lesson a few years ago when we, we had this podcast, like me using these words is not saying it's a bad thing. It's an amazing thing. Like I'm a business analyst, like Apple is an amazing business and this really gets at the core of what makes the company incredible. The funny thing about it is because they charge so much for it, it kind of self limits it from becoming a monopoly in the legal sense. That's right. No, that's what's amazing about it, right? It's like everything's in alignment because they're so expensive. They make so much money. They never achieve sufficient market share to get any sort of attention for the fact they're in this situation. So from a pragmatic profit maximization, perspective. And when I say pragmatic, I mean, taking into account antitrust laws. It's actually a pretty good strategy. 
No, it is. It's brilliant. And I've written about this in the past, you know, both in the context of thinking about in terms of like they have a monopoly on software explains why the profit margin is so sustainable. And then also I've written about how integration is super important in the fact that they've won in general, what allowed them to win the market and what also sort of preserved their place in the market. And we talked about things like better user experience, the fact that they can bring both products like the iPhone and features like sort of Apple Pay to market in a much more effective way. Way because they sort of have that loyal and built-in customer base. And again, these are customers that are there because they're happy to be there because they like the experience. I mean, the beautiful thing about this theory too is there's a natural experiment which shows where it falls down or what happens when you remove that aspect, which is China. And the importance of WeChat, which is almost like an operating system for so many things built on top of iOS, and it reduces the differentiation of iOS. Like you go into China, people don't use iMessage, people, they use apps, but like so many of them are actually purchased and used through WeChat, like integration is done at the WeChat level and it reduces the differentiation of the experience that Apple provides because you can just pick up WeChat and move it to an Android device. And as a result, you can see Apple doesn't do as well in years where the external hardware casing doesn't change because people are really only buying Apple much more for the brand than they are for the experience. No, that's exactly right. I think it's happened for enough years that we can, I feel pretty good about having sort of put that theory forward. When Apple releases new designs, and that I think is happening this year right now, their sales in China do very well. And when they don't release new designs, they don't. And this isn't just a, oh, of course, that's the case for Apple generally. No, there is a distinct difference in performance between greater China and the other regions of the world that Apple operates in. And it's aligned to this. Your point's exactly right. Like That's the reason why WeChat is a threat to Apple, not because they monetize and I messaged on those lines is because it reduces that differentiation. The integration that Apple provides is less valuable. And again, that doesn't mean that Apple can't make a lot of money in China and can't do well in China, but their moat is much smaller. And the burden that is placed on the hardware to sell itself is relatively higher than it is in other markets. Yeah. It's cool that a natural experiment like that exists, actually. It is. It is. And it's quite interesting. And so the reason I kind of wanted to explore this angle again, though, but from a different perspective, like we've talked about in the past as far as that's how they make a lot of money. But what was striking to me, and and it's kind of like three stories all happened last week at the same time that sort of made this sort of dawn on me, is that let's step aside from Apple for a moment. So drop Apple out of your mind because it sort of warps everyone's thinking and they get like all caught up in, you know, either I must defend Apple or, or whatever it might be. Like, what's the problem with monopolies? Like big picture. So one is like an economic problem. Like there is what's called deadweight loss. I wrote about this in an article about Facebook relative to Snapchat. It suggested that loss, you can use that model to think about not just money, but also innovation or other things along those lines. I'll put that link in the show notes just because it explains the concept more. But there's deadweight loss where basically the monopoly optimizes for itself instead of optimizing for the equilibrium point of where supply and demand would meet. And you end up with like fewer items being sold, but they're sold at a higher price. And so there's some part of the market that's unserved. So that's the traditional sort of economic loss. But there's also things like you get worse products or worse customer service. Why do people hate their cable company? Because <laughs> they don't have any choice in the matter and the cable company knows it and everyone knows it. And there's no incentives to do a better job to serve people better. And people get very frustrated, but they can't go anywhere else. You know, what's a criticism that people have about government? Why is going to the DMV such a nightmare? Well, because there's nowhere else to go. It's the only place to get your driver's license renewed. And so you're going to get a lower level of service. And these are all sort of things we sort of intuitively know are the case for monopolies. So what was interesting is like, 
Well, okay. If I have argued in the past that Apple basically profits like a monopoly without having a monopoly, what's interesting is actually they can also sometimes get the downsides of a monopoly without having a monopoly. Like you're actually seeing the same sort of effects. So I gave three examples from last week. So I'm going to list them all here quickly and I think we can sort of dive into them. The first one is the MacBook keyboard issue, the butterfly keyboard, where, you know, some number of people had keyboards that didn't work or would fail over time. And they had to go in and have the whole thing replaced. And it persisted as an issue for years. <laughs> like this keyboard was introduced in April, 2015 and Apple just came out with a new MacBook pro last week with a different sort of mechanism. So we went four and a half years with this keyboard that was clearly problematic where Apple, I took a screenshot of this, but in the article, Apple literally had a support article, still has a support article showing you how to use compressed air to clean your laptop in case it stops working. Like the fact this graphic exists is kind of mind blowing. And you think about it, how could a company survive? How could they actually sell a hundred billion dollars worth of laptops that have this issue? Well, because they have a monopoly, right? Yeah. Again, not a traditional monopoly as from a legal sense, but they have a monopoly on Mac OS. If you like Mac OS, if your workflows depend on Mac OS, if all the applications you bought are in Mac OS, if your everything is about Mac OS and you need a laptop, you have no choice. You have to buy this keyboard. Yeah. Or you could be like me clinging on to my six-year-old computer. Yeah, that's right. Six-year-old computer where the keyboard's becoming more ergonomic as the middle of the case slowly rises up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. I think we need to call this episode more ergonomic. Um, <laughs> number two, and I think we'll spend more time on the keyboard because I think there's lots of interesting angles to get into with it. Yes. But uh, number two was sort of the Germany passed at least initial version of a law that will effectively force Apple to open up the NFC chip. So right now, the NFC chip has been in iPhone since iPhone 6. It was only useful for Apple Pay. Apple slowly sort of opened it up, but it's still nowhere near sort of the full functionality that's possible with NFC. And I think it's a real shame because I think NFC is actually a super fascinating technology that has all sorts of interesting use cases. And it's completely has not developed at all because a huge part of the market is not basically participating in it. Interesting, interesting anecdote around this, which is at work, we have recently rolled out in some of our offices an application that's tied to the door readers. So when you gain access to a building or you're going between different floors or whatever, you can actually use your phone to unlock the door. It's called proxy, I think. It's absolutely fantastic. I feel like this just feels like the future. It's like wave the phone in front of the door and the door opens. It's like, why hasn't someone done this before? I think part of what you're saying is driving at exactly that question. Why hasn't someone done this before? That's right. And do you have to open the app or it just works? So you have to open the app every week or so. But once you've opened the app recently, you just wave the phone in front of the door and it just works. Yeah. So this is actually a great example because that functionality where you can just use the phone and without having to open an app or do something on those lines, that's only made possible in iOS 13, which came out obviously, you know, just a couple months ago here in 2019. And the reason this is actually gets at what I'm talking about is NFC was first on Android phones in 2010. It was first on the iPhone in 2013. And this capability was there all along, but you couldn't actually access that capability until 2019. Like it took nine years. And that's something that you see with monopolies where innovation just never quite makes it to market in many respects because there's not that competition driver to push it out the door. And in this case, NFC, you know, the whole NFC market, in my estimation, just never really developed because the largest player in the market, which is the iPhone, wasn't really a part of it. And so why would you want to do that sort of investment. 
I can't help but run to Apple's defense a little bit here, because if you really want to talk about the NFC market not developing an Android having had this capability since 2010, it wasn't really until Apple started pushing Apple Pay that I had, or really it feels like anyone had any use for NFC. And it obviously is dependent on the merchants or the owners of the payment terminals accepting NFC payments. But I remember when Apple's first started pushing Apple Pay and adoption was slower inside the United States because merchants owned the terminals as opposed to the banks owning the terminals and the merchants were slower to upgrade their terminals to support it. But I went back to Australia and just everywhere, all of a sudden I could use Apple Pay and it was like, this is insane. I don't need to take my wallet with me anymore. And they did all the work of lining up the banks. They made the user experience great. They made it really easy to understand. The activation process was great. And then literally I could wander around without a wallet. And now it's slowly catching on inside the United States. And like in terms of getting a killer NFC application and doing all the work of lining all the players up to get this supported and pushing it, the reason that NFC is as popular as it is right now is because of Apple. So, I mean, I hear you in terms of like, there could have been a lot more innovation that happened after that point. But as is often the case, the integrated player pushing for that initial use case, if it wasn't for Apple, I don't feel like NFC would be something that anybody is talking about. Well, see, you could argue though, that the argument you just made makes my point because once Apple supported NFC payments, NFC payments became broadly popular. And I was like, well, it's been an Android. Why does anyone support these other NFC use cases like tags or IDs or, you know, logging into your company, going through doors? It's like, well, because Apple didn't support it. Do you see what I mean? Like yes. you're making the case that when Apple supports something, it becomes broadly popular. And that's my point. Why did it take six years for you to be able to open the doors to your office? Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree. I guess. The point no, that I, I like it. I like it because my point in the article is that there are benefits and there are costs. So actually, yes. I, I agree with you. Yes. And I think Apple Pay is actually one of the more interesting places to discuss this because it's not just that Apple Pay is a great user experience, but also the integration is one of the deepest sets of integrations because it goes all the way down to the chip level, right? To the secure enclave where your wallet data is stored. A concern I would have with this German law, for example, is where is the wallet data stored for these apps that don't have access to secure enclave and maybe shouldn't? Like, are they going to say that? Apple has to open that up as well. Like you're definitely going down a bit of a slippery slope here. So I think it's actually a great point that we can definitely go back and forth with. And it really makes the point that I was trying to make in the article. And again, this is why I was made, shouldn't put in monopoly in the title. It just triggers a certain way yeah. that people think about something, even though it's one of those things where it's, Exactly what I mean. They have a monopoly on iOS and all their operating systems, which means they get the profits of monopoly and they get the benefits and they get some of the downsides too that flows from integration. But it's like people just see that word and they get so hung up on it. And this is a great example where, no, there's pluses and minuses. Right. It's that initial use case that the integration is oftentimes the thing that gets things going. and Right, which is theoretically exactly what integration does. Right. And it's almost like a chicken or an egg thing. And it's the integration that provides the starting point that kicks things off. The problem is if the integrated player might not have an incentive to open things up or move things along as much, like they start to behave a little bit like the monopolist that you're talking about. And while they get things going, they don't allow the technology or whatever it might be to unlock to its full potential. 
That's exactly right. And that's why this whole question of like integration modularization is particularly interesting in technology because like a lot of the examples that Professor Christian used talking about this did not have things like network effects or did not have things like multi-sided markets in the case that that emerges with technological products or the same level of return to scale. I mean, the, the thing with technology is, yes, return to scale is not a new concept. That's obviously a major factor in business has been for a long time. But as we've talked about, when you're dealing with zero marginal costs, the implications that returns to scale are, are effectively infinite, right? Like It's like scale at scale, if that makes sense. And what's interesting about this, though, is because that means that if an integrated product, just to read back up, sort of the theory is that an integrated product wins at the beginning because all products are not good enough. And an integrated product can internalize more of the challenges of sort of serving this market, and they will deliver something better than the modular product. But over time, the modular product will catch up. And then by virtue of having competition at the different layers of the stack will both be cheaper because competition will drive prices down and will also actually end up being better. This is a thing people forget about the argument of integration versus modularization is that the competition at the different levels of the stack actually make the whole product superior to the integrated product because it improves more rapidly. It's like you can imagine if you're looking at a graph, the integration sort of shoots up and the modularization is low, but then the slope sort of changes for both where the integrated product sort of levels out and the modularized product sort of starts going vertical because this competition effect is kicking in. And the problem though in technology where this doesn't necessarily always play out is there's so much return from being first, particularly if it involves an ecosystem or involves sort of network effects. And so you saw that in the case with Apple where iOS and the iPhone got large enough quickly enough that even though Android did come along, it never peeled off the ecosystem that Apple had already built. Right. Another way in on this that's interesting is if you modularize it too soon, you have to draw boundaries around the various components. Like if you're really in a problem space where you don't know how best to draw the boundaries because you haven't figured out how to create the product in a way that best solves the customer's need, drawing those boundaries too soon eliminates your ability to create across the boundaries. And that's why modularizing too soon is often a drawback. But once you have have a sense of how the product is going to work or how to solve the customer need, then you do have more of a sense of where the boundaries are. Like this is where we should have the screen and this is the processor and so on and so forth. And then you can peel it off for all the respective players to do their parts. One other really interesting, fascinating case for me in product development, this happened with Boeing and how they developed their airplanes. And traditionally, they always did the integrated version of a new model of plane first. But with the 787, they tried to modularize straight from the beginning and they were using a new electric system and they were also using composite parts for the first time in a plane as opposed to metal parts. And they modularized it. They tried to save money by getting all the component suppliers to do it for them. And they get the bits and pieces together and things wouldn't fit. And so it's another way in that's not phones to really explain how when you're in a problem space that's unknown, being integrated is really valuable. But once you've figured out where the appropriate boundaries are, then you can pull things apart and say, okay, this is the way these things are going to talk to each other. And we'll contractually obligate ourselves to work together in such a way. And I'll focus on my bit and you focus on your bit. 
You know, what's interesting about this point, and it's a good one, about this sort of boundary question, is there's probably some sort of connection here with sort of like how an organization itself is sort of structured, right? Where if an integrated product, the lines are sort of unclear and they're shifting because you're just trying to solve. If you think about it, when you're building an integrated product, you're just trying to solve the end user problem and you're sort of abstracting away the complexities was sort of like under the surface. And by virtue of being integrated, you can deal with those complexities in a way you couldn't if you were dealing with like a third party, right? Yes. You have to have a common interface where you're working across it. In that case, you're externalizing the complexities. And you see this with like Windows computers, right? Where yes, they support everything, but a lot more of the complexities are externalized and up being visible to the end user, which again, and it's very important. Remember, this is a tremendous benefit in many respects, right? There are applications that were written 20 years ago or whatever that will run on a Windows PC today. Like try doing that on a Mac. It's not going to work very well. And again, you and I, a lot of our listeners may prefer the latter experience, but that doesn't mean the former experience isn't super duper valuable in lots of different applications. Right. But sorry, that was a bit of an aside. But you think about this idea of having a more sort of amorphous product because it's the best way to meet sort of this new need. It makes sense that you'd want a more sort of amorphous organization to create that product, one where you can vary the attention between different teams between different expertises, which is much more of sort of a functional organization sort of idea where you have the people that focus on different aspects and you can bring them together in ad hoc teams or different teams or reorganize them or do it this way to solve specific problems at specific moments in time and then come back and do a new sort of like matrix of connecting the different teams to build something else in the future. And you contrast that to more of a divisional organization where it's like this team works on this product, that team works on that product, and that presumes that the products themselves are well-defined in the first place. It's such a good point. In fact, it's interesting because like, this is where I thought you were going with your article this week. And I mean, it's really interesting to talk about this in the context of Apple, but also start to pull in other organizations as examples of this. And even contrasting that to the PC, like the use cases for PCs, it really got to the point where for the most part, what was happening was the applications were defined and it was just like, make the various bits faster. And maybe you could make the case a bit slimmer or whatever. But by and large, the types of new applications that emerged on a PC were limited. And you contrast that with the phones and how all that was happening was you were doing the same kinds of applications that we've always done on phones. Like the value of being an integrated organization would probably be less. But then you think about, okay, if you want to do something like augmented reality on the phone, which is really using a whole bunch of different pieces in a very different way for a new application. And you think about who's better positioned to be able to do something like that. It's going to be the integrated player. And it's probably more likely to have a functional alignment for the reasons you just said, because they're able to grapple with this very new type of problem and arrange the pieces internally much more easily than if it was all broken apart and focused on division of product by product by product. And I mean, even thinking about it from the perspective of the way that the iPod morphed into the iPhone and you realized, oh, there's a whole bunch of functionality that we had in one product, but we need to roll it into another product. Like a divisional structure would have struggled with that on multiple levels. One, you have a division that's making all this money. Are we really going to kill my division? I'm going to fight for my division. But it's also like some of the learnings from the iPod can be picked up and taken and moved into the iPhone. And that's not a big deal in a functional organization. 
I appreciate you pretending that was my idea. If it was my idea, I would have written that in the article. But you came back to me, as you noted, you like you thought I was going a different direction. Like I'm like, oh, that's the direction I should have gone. So we're going to go in that direction of the podcast because it's super interesting to think about this idea of what organization works better for integrated versus modular products. And how do you avoid things like go back to this keyboard thing? Like, think about it. The tact I took, again, was sort of the monopoly idea. Like monopolies can afford to have crappy products because customers can't go anywhere else. Like this is the clearest example. There's no way if there were an actual competitor selling laptops that ran Mac OS that this problem would have persisted for four and a half years because they would have gotten their rear end handed in the market. Yes, they tried to fix it. Yes, they were very sorry. I don't know if they ever said sorry. They, oh, some fraction of our customers are getting this problem. But no, there would have been all hands on deck. We have to get this fixed because we are losing market share like crazy to a competitor. And that didn't happen. It didn't happen because they had no competition in the market. It is kind of crazy. In the PC market, though, the reason why if there were Mac OS clones, it's because another competitor Competitor could come along and use the same Intel processors and put together the PC in such a way with a better keyboard and compete with Mac OS and that you'd assume would do quite well versus the very faulty keyboard. But what I also find interesting is it's not something that I would have predicted based on the theory either. But when you look at the mobile devices and how one of the core ways in which iPhones have stayed in front of Android devices are the integrated nature of the chips that Apple have built and built in-house just for their own devices. And yeah, there is definitely some integrated advantage from having the operating system work specifically with a chip and like power management and whatever. But even putting that aside, like the difference in power between the processes that Apple's managed to build as an integrated provider with their chips versus what's provided from the modular solution. It's almost like a counterpoint to the keyboard. And I think that in itself is really interesting too. Actually, I think you shouldn't put aside the operating system point because this is where integration pays off. It is worth it to invest in that performance, to invest in those chips because you know you can immediately harness it because you own the operating system and you own the camera and you own all the different sort of modules that leverage that. Like what makes the chip so powerful is not just pure performance. Like, you know, an Intel chip is a general purpose chip. It has to be able to run mm-hmm. anything. Like, yes, there are general purpose aspects of the A series of chips, but there's also specialized aspects that tie directly into features Apple can build, you know, all the way into the operating system stack. So actually, I would say the fact that the company's integrated is not just like an interesting side note to their processors be amazing. It's probably a driver of the processors be amazing because like you get the payoff right away, right? You're not just fast for being fast sake. You're fast because you immediately get product improvements that you can then sell to customers, which is pretty valuable when you're trying to get people to upgrade. Right. It's interesting though, and we've talked about previously why using the PC as a paradigm for mobile devices is flawed. I would have assumed previously that just by sheer volume, that the amount of money spent on processes for Android devices would have overwhelmed Apple with expenditure on CPUs specifically for iPhones. But I guess it's also the point that we made right at the start, which is because they've priced it at the way that they have and limited the market, but made it extremely profitable that they have that much more money to invest in processes specifically for that ecosystem. And that is more than the amount of money that the Android processor market has to spend and reinvest to create new processes there. 
I actually would go further. I think the fact that they charge such high prices means they're heavily incentivized to come up with features that justify those high prices. Whereas <laughs> the Android manufacturers, they're more incentivized to drive down costs because it's much more of a volume thing. And I think it's hard to interpret the Android market in isolation. This goes back to like the NFC chip idea. Basically, the Android market is like you almost like you've had a lobotomy or like the top of your head's like cut off. Like there is no high end market. I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Samsung sells some high end phones. Huawei sells some high end phones. But by and large, Apple dominates the high end to such a degree that there's actually very little incentive to push for features that sell to the high end. It's like, what's the point if you're not going to make it back? Because people that are buying Android, again, we're making broad generalizations, but by and large are focused on price. And they're not focused on necessary performance. Anyone who's focused on performance is already buying an iOS product. And again, just to tie in the NFC point, right? That's why there is no NFC market. It's like, well, Android has 85% of the market. There should be lots of NFCs out there. Well, no, it doesn't work that way, particularly given the fact that it's not just the 15% of the market. It's the top 15% of the market as far as the ability to spend, you know, income, all those sorts of things. Again, broad generalizations, but generally the case where it's not worth the investment because you're missing such a critical part of the market because Apple has basically taken it. Got it. Makes sense. We've gone down a little bit of a rabbit hole and it's an interesting one on the processes, but I want to pull us back to the keyboard. And the reason why I started to think about this as I read your article was it's like once upon a time, it would almost be unfathomable to imagine that Apple would release a product with this kind of very obvious flaw and then persist. And I started to think about it in terms of the nature of leadership and how it's changed inside of Apple. And since Steve Jobs has passed Johnny Ive has taken a much bigger role inside the company. And Garuba had a really interesting point in his review that this latest MacBook Pro release almost feels like the de-Ivification of Apple. And it got me thinking about what's the role of a leader inside of an integrated company and particularly one where underneath it's a functional organization. It speaks to the importance of product leadership and editing because all of these functions are fighting for their various aspects, the things that they think are important. And as I've took more and more importance inside of Apple, then design got pushed forward. And the big advantage of the previous butterfly keyboard was that it was thinner and that allowed in turn the case to be thinner. And this made the device look much more beautiful, but it also meant that the device was much less usable. And that's the kind of thing where I feel like having an editor as leader, looking over all of the functions and making sure one's not getting too far out of whack is really, really important. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, this idea that you need both inspiration and editing, like those are both part of sort of the creative process, necessary parts of the creative process. And Tim Cook is not an editor. He's a manager. And I say that in the most positive aspects of the term, it is to his credit. He did not insert himself as sort of a product designer or I'm going to make product calls, but it left a big hole at Apple. And, and I think it mattered that I've at his best had jobs with him because I think it's two halves of the whole, right? I think you see this across Apple broadly. I think there is an editing question at Apple. Like, look at just the software quality in general. And a lot of this software quality, you know, we hear talk about, oh, you know, Apple is very focused on the numbers and software crashes much less and they have good, all that sort of things. But the problems people are encountering are not necessarily about software crashing. It's about stuff just not working right or being weird. I mean, an example that I think of, speaking of keyboards, is the virtual keyboard on the iPhone. There's this maddening quality where it will go back and fix something when you've already moved on. And it's like, oh, we're using machine learning and make it all better. It may 
makes me want to throw my phone through the wall. Like it's so infuriating, not just because like it probably is the case that the new autocorrection is more accurate on a numerical basis, but from a user experience perspective, it's awful. <laughs> like it's really, really terrible. Either fix the mistake while I'm typing it and I can see the correction happening or just leave it, leave it be wrong, right? You'll send something and you realize you said something you didn't say at all because it was changing it behind your back. It's like, what's going on here? And I hate to use the, if Steve Jobs was here, but it's impossible to imagine that shipping if Steve Jobs was here. Like, he'd be like, what the, What is this? And it is very Steve Jobs in a way. Like, no, we're not going to ship this. Go back to the old school, like, nearest letter guesstimate thing that we use the iPhone 1 because at least it didn't make people throw their phones through the wall. Right. You tapped into something that I think is just is very frustrating about modern day Apple. Right. I always worry when we start getting too deep into the job stuff, but I think the instructive lesson or the generalizable pattern is like the role of leadership in a functional organization like this. And it also caused me to start to think about the nature of leadership. If that's the type of leader you want in a functional organization, the type of leader you want in a divisional organization. And you think about Jeff Bezos when he decided he was going to play the role of editor with a fire phone and the unmitigated disaster that ended up happening Seriously, there. the worst smartphone I've ever used. It was right. so bad. And then also, was it the first episode of Exponent where we talked about Microsoft and Satya Nadella? And just, I am convinced he's going to go down as like one of the best CEOs in history, not for his editing abilities, but for his ability to manage the divisions. When he came to the helm of Microsoft, Windows was the primary thing inside of Microsoft. It was the division that mattered most. Bulmer had built that up and his ability to manage up services and manage down windows. That's not a Steve Jobsian skill, but like his ability to do that in the context of the divisional structure is a big part of the reason Microsoft's doing as well as it is today. And like that Bezos example and the Nadella example versus looking at Jobs and Cook. And that was the priming that I got from your article, just thinking about, okay, these are the types of organizations and the integrated modular and then how that maps to functional and divisional. What type of leaders work best in both? It's just an amazing insight, you know, because we've talked about functional versus divisional organizations are very different, but your point extending it, it requires very, very different leadership skills, very, very different CEOs. And, you know, tech just has this in its head. Oh, we need to be a CEO like Steve Jobs. And actually, no, Steve Jobs is the appropriate sort of executive for a very specific sort of business that is organized in a very specific sort of way, right? Steve Jobs was basically the ultimate product manager and Apple was organized as a single sort of fiefdom. It was organized around him. Like he was the star at the center. Idea generation had to flow up and then editing had the sort of like decision-making flow down. And that worked well for Apple, worked phenomenally well for Apple, obviously. You know, and what's so important about this is like Steve Jobs was the reason why things like the keyboards didn't happen because Apple didn't have the market feedback mechanism to prevent these sort of mistakes. They had this jobs feedback mechanism to prevent these sort of mistakes. And I think what you saw is once they lose that, then the natural sort of entropy of organization starts to take over and you start slipping in areas that were sort of held together by the force at the top previously. And to your point, that's the last thing, like that job is not at all the job of Jeff Bezos or the job of Satya Nadella, right? They are not about product leadership. They're not necessarily about editing. Like if Microsoft and Amazon are functioning well, they are regularly shipping products and shipping features that Jeff Bezos and Satya Nadella know nothing about. 
right? Their job is by like capital allocation, like who gets money and who doesn't. And this can involve like birthing new product categories, killing ones that need to go and sort of like organizational design. And to your point about windows, right? The brilliant thing about windows is, is sort of devaluing it, devaluing it, moving it down. And then he actually split it in two. So it would never again achieve this sort of dominance within Microsoft that it might have previously. So if you think about it, capital allocation, organizational design, dramatically different skill sets than product leadership and sort of editing requiring dramatically different leaders. And that flows up from the organizational design, which also applies to sort of this type of products they're making, whether they're integrated products or modular products. The other thing that you pointed out at the start of the article, and I think this is something I've been guilty of, is like everybody got starry-eyed about Apple around integration, but they also have gotten very starry-eyed about functional organizations. Like I remember the first time I heard that the only person inside of Apple that carried a profit and loss was Luca Maestri, the CFO. I was like, oh, wow, that's the most incredible thing ever. This is the thing that allows them to innovate. And it's like, there's almost been a starry-eyed view of functional orgs. And it's like, that's not always the case. Like there's sometimes just as integrated is better and sometimes and modular is better. Other times I feel like functional is better sometimes and divisional is better other times. Now, I think the reason that most startups when they're founded, they start with more of a functional orientation is it's good when you have a limited number of products, but at the point that you have more than a few products or the nature of the product starts to become very different or the customer starts to become very different. I mean, it sounds obvious the customer is different. You need a different type of org, but it's like, that's the point at which actually you start to want to switch to a divisional structure. And like Apple's great because it has a handful of products that it does very well. But as soon as they start to veer too much from what they've originally set out to do, that structure starts to fail. And you more than anyone have been fantastic at pointing out like they're great at shipping hardware and operating systems associated with the hardware, but like they've tried to take a functional orientation towards services. And it's like just the cadence of that business is so fundamentally different. And then on the other hand, one of the things that they did, and I had firsthand experience when I was working there was like retail is like an example of them setting up a division inside of Apple. And the fact that they created a separate division they recognized it was very different from the rest of the business. It needs to be firewalled off to be run very separately. I think that speaks to exactly why the Apple retail operation has been as successful as it's been. That's right. And like, that's fine for Apple sort of thing that should be taken much more seriously. And to your point, at the end of the day, you don't make good products because you try really hard and you really want to make good products, right? You have to have the structure in place to make great products. And again, the Apple functional organization worked very, very well with one, a limited number of products, and two, when you had Steve Jobs sitting on top, that was able to sort of like be the counterweight that is normally served by the market generally. And the reason why divisional organizations generally and everyone ends up there is you need it to manage, right? Like PLs are super useful to make sure an organization is running its business well, right? The way you scale is not by Satya Nadella going and examining every single product that Microsoft ships and saying if it passes standards or not. That doesn't scale at all. The way he does it is by looking at organizations saying, what's your PL number? Because if it's not doing well, then you have to go down and find out what's going wrong. And if it is doing well, then you're probably 
satisfying most of the issues, right? It's a way to scale management generally. And that's a good thing, right? The market giving feedback, is your product successful or not, is an incredibly useful mechanism to run a company well. And yeah, I agree this is an issue with Apple. I mean, this is why back when I wrote that Apple's organizational structure is such a challenge, particularly when it comes to services, is it's not just that the way you build things is different. You know, services is much more iterative. There's a million variables that you can never account for all of them, which means you have to have sort of a self-correcting and self-regulating and self-improvement factor built into the product so that it's sort of like improving as it's used and as opposed to breaking down as it encounters things that don't work with it versus, you know, building a phone and you want to make it a jewel and as perfect as it can be the moment you ship. It's just totally different. But also, So what's the feedback mechanism here, right? If the phone's broke, it's broke. And if the keyboard's broke, it's broke. And you can even see there, it still broke down. The process still broke down because they didn't have appropriate feedback. If the process broke down building a hardware product, how on earth is that process and structure ever going to work for an online services? It's like you had your hand on the burner and you were feeling no pain and your hand is like literally a flame because there's no (laughs) feedback mechanism here. One of the most controversial things I put in that article back then, I think a A lot of people agreed with the overall sort of premise, this idea that building services is different than building products and Apple needs to split it up. The end is where a lot of people disagree, where I said they need to institute some sort of PL metric into the services. And I put some ideas out there and I said, obviously it's gonna be very difficult because they're not necessarily charging for it. But the point of that is there needs to be a feedback loop about how they are doing that goes beyond like we're trying really hard. Right. And that doesn't mean that it needs to be profitable from day one. It just creates visibility such that- Or profitable at all, right? Right. right. (laughs) Totally. It just gives you visibility because otherwise everything's conflated. It's really hard to pull apart what's being driven by services, what's being driven by hardware. And like this kind of pulls it apart and gives you visibility. And I mean, Microsoft obviously was a divisional structure, but Amazon feels like it's taken this notion to the next level where it's almost like Bezos is a VC sitting on top of all these different things as they start up and spin up. They're given lots of independence and then he has a high degree of visibility and it almost Certainly none of these things when they start out are going to be profitable, but you can make rational decisions around investment. It's like, okay, and then you get the results back and the results are distinct to that division. And then you can make a decision whether to continue to invest in it or kill it. Whereas where everything's conflated together, that becomes a lot harder. And maybe you don't do a product, but that's more likely to be because technically you couldn't figure out how to do the product as opposed to the same rigor that comes from that division structure. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the other thing is when stuff's all conflated together and it's not clear what's successful and what's not and who's responsible, that's just a breeding ground for the worst sort of like internal organizational politics because everyone's angling to sort of get credit and take credit for other things and people are mad about it and resentful. And that's a great way to sort of see your quality deteriorate over time and your workforce quality deteriorate over time. And just the broader point here is it's a scalability thing. Like the way Apple did things worked very, very well when they're shipping a small number of things. Today, when they're doing TV, they're doing music, they're doing online services, they're doing chips, they're doing all this sorts of stuff. You know, there's some signs that this is starting to change. They now have a guy that reports directly to Tim Cook, who is responsible for online services, and that's an encouraging sign. And I think they need to go much further down this route, particularly to your point, in product categories that are well-defined. The great thing about a divisional structure is you can have different divisions, and within those divisions, they can be functional, right? And to your point, Apple's already done this. Retail has always been a distinct division that's separate from the rest of the company. And If Apple is going to scale to all these sorts of things that they 
continue to scale with continuing to sort of shoehorn it into the company as it was originally structured just seems like a great way to have weird quality issues that seemingly persist forever, which is exactly kind of what we're seeing from Apple. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, when I started pulling on this thread, I didn't actually think we would end up at the place where maybe the recommendation, quote unquote, here is Apple needs to start to consider its organizational structure and think about it differently as they become more like lots of other tech companies competing in so many other spaces. Like part of the reason they're running into these problems is because they're reaching the limit of an overall functional organizational structure. And if they want to start to get serious about competing, in these spaces. And it's crazy because like everyone was so enamored with this functional structure that even Steve Ballmer and Microsoft, the divisional pinnacle, he was partway down. Like his attribution of what Microsoft needed to do was to change it to a functional organizational structure. It's crazy. But I actually wonder if the recommendation here is like maybe Apple needs to start to consider some of these long held assumptions around the CFO being the only one that carries a P&L around the functional Org, maybe it's time to start considering a switch. That Steve Ball decision was yeah. so stupid. I, I went back and, you know, I have a little summary of each article that says it. Why Microsoft's reorganization is a bad idea in my one sentence summary is Steve Ballmer is reorganizing Microsoft into a functional organization. It is a mistake that misunderstands the company he leads. And then I say in the article that it's just going to hasten Microsoft's decline. And I think all those points are exactly right for what you just said. A functional organization, like it is the best way to build integrated products. It's the best way to build products with a great user experience. It's a great way to innovate and create products that have never existed before. Again, for all the things we talked about, they have that sort of flexibility and that malleability because the boundaries aren't defined. You don't know where to draw the divisions if something is brand new. It's a very important and key point. That means though, if you want to have that be the overarching structure for your entire company, it means saying no a whole lot more than Apple says no. Apple likes to brag about saying no, but there's very little evidence of Apple saying no for a very long time. And if you're not going to say no, then you have to sort of reorganize yourself such that you don't tip over under your own weight. Yeah. And it's, again, not to say functional is good, divisional is bad, or divisional is good if functional is bad, but it's just like the circumstances under which. And as you get different types of customers, as you have different economic or pricing models, as you have like a different cadence to the way that the product is developed, as you have a very different skill set required in the people to build the core part of the product... That's where it's like, okay, guys, maybe this everybody under one roof model isn't going to work so well anymore. And we need to start considering breaking things apart a little bit more. It's like modularizing your organization. No, that's exactly right. And this is something when I was back at Apple University, I said this, you know, at the time, it's like the problem with writing stuff down is it gets ossified and it becomes sort of like a set in stone. And this idea of the importance of Apple being a functional organization was a key sort of principle way back when. And, you know, there's the famous Tim Cook doctrine that talks about that sort of thing. And the problem is that what happens when you start sort of obsessing over the means instead of the ends is that you end up screwing up your ends or delivering ends you didn't mean to because the means are sort of no longer appropriate. And in this case, it seems so obvious to keep the sort of old Apple, for lack of a better term, the integrated Apple that builds these new products that came up with the watch. Like Apple can still do this. They came up with the AirPods, you know, amazing product that will probably come up with augmented reality. Like all that is worth preserving and needs to be preserved. And there's nothing wrong with putting that over in its own division. And that division itself can be a functional 
division, if that makes sense, internal to itself, and then put all this other stuff off to the side. And yes, Apple say, oh, yes, they're managed by different people. They're over here. But I think a much higher level of clarity would be appropriate where this is the online services division. This is the media division. And you have VPs of product in those divisions. You have VPs of marketing in those divisions. And it's clear they are doing something different from what this part of Apple is doing. And they're going to have different responsibilities. They're going to have different KPIs. They're going to have different ways of holding them accountable. And we're doing that so we can preserve the integration that makes us great. You don't need to integrate everything. You need to integrate the most important things. And it's what we've been talking about the whole time. Integration is not an absolute good. It's not an absolute bad. Modularization is not an absolute good, and it's not an absolute bad. I mean, when I started Shatekri and we started this podcast, it was very much pushing against the assumption that modularization was an absolute good, right? And the point was, nah, actually, no, I think integration is actually a very good thing, and Apple's going to be fine. And now it's as we've talked about, it's kind of flipped the other direction and it nowhere is it flipped more than within Apple itself. And you can understand, you know, everyone's saying you're going to fail because you're not modularized. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. And Apple held to the principle said, no, we believe this is the right way to organize the company. And this was a core thing to Steve Jobs. The first thing he did when he came back was abolish Apple's divisions and return it to a functional organization. Like he thought more about the sort of organizational structure of Apple than anyone else. That's why Tim Cook feels it so strongly because he got that from Steve. But that doesn't mean it's the right thing forever. And if you don't, sorry. No, 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 you don't need to apologize. But there's one thing that you said in there, which I think is instructive, which is to treat this as a principle. The principle is do the right thing for the circumstances. Like the principle is never, this is always right. And this is always wrong in terms of organizational structures. The principle is like adapt to the circumstances. And I think the point that you're making that this was written down and then this was learned and now it's ossifying and people are resistant to change, I think is exactly the same one. And the analogy isn't perfect, but the funny thing for me is as an outsider inside the United States, it's the same thing with something like a constitution. Like that is an incredible document, but when people revere it and refuse to consider that there might be things wrong with it, it starts to ossify and the circumstances change, but then you're stuck in this straitjacket and you need to be able to have a debate and say, okay, these things need to change. Like it worked then and this was very far-sighted, and that was right then, but the circumstances change and therefore the way in which we operate needs to change to adapt to that as well. Well, the other thing I would think about is last episode, we talked about the principal stacks, right? And in the case of Apple, the top principal should be delivering the best possible. Yes. Yes. And what happened is the principle of be a functional organization seems to have gone above that, right? Even if it ends up in subpar products, as we've argued is often the case when it comes to sort of the services. That's like the perfect thread from last week to explain this. Like, that's brilliant. This is, I think, the theme of this whole podcast is to say one way to run a company or one way to organize a company or one way to deliver a product is the best way to do it is always wrong. It's your absolutism that is wrong because sometimes integration is better. Sometimes modularization is better. Sometimes functional is better. Sometimes divisional is better. And the truly great leaders have the wisdom to understand when to go in which direction. Like that's what I talked about. Like the best CEOs, it's capital allocation and it's organizational structure. Like that is the ultimate job of a CEO. And I think in some respects, it's funny because Steve Jobs was just to reiterate this point, I made a few minutes ago, he was revered for his product sense, but he was obsessed with the organization. Like it's something he thought a lot about. And despite the fact he was so non-traditional relative to other CEOs, that was the one big thing that he thought a lot about. And that is absolutely core to what makes a CEO great. Yep. 
I think that's as good a place as any to wrap. I think that's a great point. Yeah, this is a shame because this is probably a much better podcast than my article. We should have talked first. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I feel like I needed to see your article to prime me and I was expecting it to go one way and then it went another. And that was what gave me the idea to like, I think I have an idea for what we might talk about. No, that's happened before. And sometimes it happens to me personally. Like yeah. I write the article and then I go back a few days later, I'm like, you know what, what I should have written is yeah, this. Um, right. But that's fine. That means I can write it again sometime in the future. Right. Very good. Well, it was good to talk to you. Next week is Thanksgiving. We will definitely not be podcasting. Um, if we're very inspired, we're going to podcast. And if we're busy or not, we're not. I like the schedule we're on. It's good to talk to you. And I will look forward to talk to you soon. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.